Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, or Robert Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is the story of a mixed-race uh, biracial 11-year-old detective uh, who solves crimes, uh, who uh, hooks up with his cousin Ellicott Skullworth to fight the giant robot bees and the alligator people, and later the crimson cyborg. Oh, what a time you're going to have. You can get that first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as an e-book, as an audio book, or a paperback, but that ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, but what I really want to emphasize, because I'm trying to impress our guest, Kelly uh, McWilliams, tonight, I want to emphasize my books under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, because I've got a book called All Together Now The Zombie Story. And if you like Agnes at the End of the World, that's going to be right up your alley. It's a young adult novel about siblings that are uh, trying to escape from zombies. Uh, but there's also plenty of, uh, of Christian villains that, that come along and, and cause them trouble. It's a story of the zombie apocalypse set here with the great Hoosier state of Indiana. And my theory is you don't get zombies in Indiana without at least a church being involved and a Walmart. Uh, so we've got both of those things. And you might also check out the Book of David. Uh, which is um, a book about a man who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions. And that will also scratch that itch um, for you uh, uh, fans of Agnes at the end of the world. Uh, and in fact, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. I started a new young adult novel and I thought, well, it's going to be about siblings. It'll be similar to All Together Now. Uh, but I want to get the zombies out of there, so I'll put them in a cult. And then maybe there'll be a pandemic that happens. And then they'll be trying to get out at the end of the world, having been raised in a cult. What a brilliant story idea. So, of course, naturally, the first thing I do is I start reading the market. Anybody written anything like that? Uh, never happened to me before, but by God, I came across Agnes at the end of the world. And I said, well, that was a good story idea. That's, that's not up for debate. It, it works really well. I'm just going to have to retool mine because Kelly McWilliams accomplished it brilliantly. Uh, so Kelly McWilliams, I am thrilled to talk with you. I'm going to ask you for all kinds of tips on how to write my newer, better <laughs> end of the world story <laughs> about a cult. And we're going to talk about uh, Mirror Girls and, and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so welcome to the program. I'm thrilled to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. That is wild. I've been right there doing that market research. I'm pretty sure I did that for Agnes too. And you never expect to find the same like shuffling of themes and ideas. I will say, Agnes, originally, there was like some extraterrestrial activity in there. So maybe you could layer that into the story. <laughs> That's not for grabs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that brings us back to the Book of David. I've already, I've already done my religious oh, right. extraterrestrial activity. But you know what? There's, there's always more. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> I started my research. I read The Project by Courtney Summers because uh, Courtney Summers wrote... Um, Oh, shoot. What's the name of her zombie book? Um, something about the phone, the, the call. The, I, and I'm thanked in the back of it. It's so terrible that I can't think of the name. Uh, anyway, I read the, the project and it was a wonderful book. I'm like, well, that's nothing like what I have planned. I'm in the clear. What's up next? Oh, it's Kelly McWilliams. Thank God it was, it was the second book. It wasn't like number five because I'd already been all the, almost to the finish line before realizing how much figuring I had to do. 
Uh, so esteemed audience knows that I will never summarize another author's uh, biography or their book, although I've, <laughs> I've done a little bit of that tonight. Um, but uh, why would I want you to sit there and listen to me make a mess of either of those things when you're right here? So Kelly McWilliams, please give us an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Yes, so um, I'll just start with Agnes at the End of the World. It's the story of a teenage girl who um, escapes from a fundamentalist cult that preaches that the end of the world is coming. Um, she needs to escape because her younger brother has um, type 1 diabetes and he's not going to survive in this cult that forbids medicine and technology of all kinds and cordons everyone off from the outside world. Um, but when she does flee to that outside world, when she finally gets up the courage, she's surprised and terrified to find that the world actually is ending and the cause at that moment is a terrible pandemic which has nothing to do with our current pandemic it's more along the lines of the zombie apocalypse um, this book did come out in June 2020, so I did not see the future. It was written well before that, um, but that's kind of the basic ingredients of that story, and it was a real blast to write. It's set in Arizona, um, where I grew up. Uh, grew up in Arizona, went off to school, and um, met my, my husband. We moved out to Hawaii, and I lived there for a few years. Um, and while I was in Hawaii, I actually was pregnant with my daughter, and we had a Zika outbreak. Um, actually, it was like an international sort of outbreak. It was mostly local, localized in, in Latin America, but we had the type of mosquitoes that could spread it. And that's where I kind of got my first um, taste of that kind of public health disaster fear. And that was the inspiration for that layer of the apocalypse in Agnes's story. Um, we shortly left Hawaii because we couldn't afford it anymore. <laughs> and so we had to get somewhere on the mainland and, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't even know where we were just wherever we could get, you know, jobs set up. So we ended up in Colorado Springs, um, which was a very interesting landscape after having written Agnes, because it also has, um, quite a lot of religion and a lot of fundamentalism too. So that was interesting to, to be finishing that story and revising that story around. Um, and now I live in Seattle, which um, I'm enjoying a lot, have only been here for a couple years. And uh, this is where I wrote, um, actually, no, I guess I split it between Colorado Springs and here, but Mirror Girls, which is my, my book that came out in February. Um, yeah. I've got all sorts of, of follow-up questions. Um, I should put a lot. <laughs> we, 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 we've got time. We're, we're going to cover them all. Um, I should point out for a esteemed audience, because it was driving me nuts, the book that uh, Courtney Summers wrote about zombies is This Is Not a Test. It comes highly recommended. Uh, I am the Rob Kent thanked in the back because I bugged her for, I don't know, ever since she wrote Cracked Up to Be to the End of Please, Please Write a Zombie Book. And she, she did probably would have if I hadn't bugged her, but it was still nice to be thanked in the back. Um, so as far, we, we've got all kinds of things to talk about, because I know your mother is also a novelist, which I'm fascinated by. Um, I want to talk about Mirror Girls, but she gave us a nice summary of, of Agnes at the end of the world. So let's dive in there and, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to everything else. Um, so you write that in 2017, 2020 comes along. We live through an actual pandemic um, and an actual, um, a little bit of a conservative Christian uprising amongst us. Uh, as we record this, we are talking here at the end of July, esteemed audience knows the deal. We record these episodes that come out much later, so they're probably listening to it in October or November. 
Um, so hopefully the world has changed dramatically, but as we record this, that's where we're at. The Supreme Court has, has made a, a series of catastrophic conservative Christian fundamentalist decisions. So I expect that there will be a lot of books uh, coming out in the near future about uprisings of, of cults and, and everybody, I, I think, in the country, if you're not already in that sort of situation, kind of got their head snapped and like, wait, what? What, 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 are, you, what are you folks planning? Uh, so this predates all of that. So now that you've lived through so much of this, are there any revisions that you would, would make? Anything that, uh, yeah. You know, it's funny, it, it predates it, but I think it sort of was growing alongside it in a funny kind of way. I, um, you know, out in Hawaii, we had that uh, sort of Zika scare. Um, but when I actually gave birth to my daughter, it was on election day in, in 2016. Um, and I remember my mother was there and I had been laboring through the day. Um, and um, at the end I asked, well, did we get my daughter a female president for her birthday? And her, her face just fell like the nurses couldn't get out of the room fast enough um, because that was, a, that was a really tough day. And I remember, you know, I had done maybe uh, a little bit of a draft of Agnes, but it was only, only my mentor really had seen it. It hadn't even sort of been through you know, to my editor and, um, that's when I, I sort of turn up the gas, I say, on the themes about, um, you know, women's rebellion and um, need for liberation. That's sort of like, we didn't know what was going to happen now for sure, but there was definitely something in the air that you could smell sort of coming down the pike. And certainly like one of the first things I think a lot of us did think when, when Trump was elected was, you know, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. And to have seen it all sort of like, fall, the cards fall this way has, has been really, really strange. Um, in terms of revising it, man, I, I don't know that I, what I would do to sort of revise this story, but I do sometimes wonder about where some of these ex-cult members would be today and sort of what their sequel story might look like. One thing that, uh, that, that struck me is, um, um, a, lot of, a lot of things. I, I absolutely fell in love with this book, but there, Agnes gets her hands on a smartphone and Agnes is a, a true believer, but she starts to read about the outside world and, and facts get in there and she starts to question what she has been taught. And that strikes me as a perfectly reasonable um, prediction about human behavior prior to about 2019, 2020, when I start arguing with family relatives, family about uh, should you wear a mask, should you not wear a mask, what is a fact, what's an alternate fact. Um, and so, and so now I wonder if a fundamentalist person got their hands on some facts, would it make a difference? Would they be the, which facts would they be? No, I, I completely agree with you. There's a strain that's been running through my fiction. Like I'm just at the tail end of finishing a novel. So I'm kind of reflecting on this stuff in general. I, I've been optimistic about technology and about the internet and how it can connect us and, and shape our views for the better, like you can see that kind of optimistic strain that exactly once she gets that phone in her hands, her world cracks open and she starts to see, um, she starts to see things, you know, as we would say, as they really are, as opposed to, you know, that counter voice to what she's been told. But we know now that the sort of, that there's all sorts of misinformation and disinformation and, and bad faith acting out there that she very well could have tumbled into the wrong part of the internet and may have never have left that cult. Um, that is something that I absolutely did not foresee. And, um, my, the, my book that I just finished, I'm perhaps 
like ill-advisedly making predictions about what where TikTok might take us. So I think Agnes, you know, it was not a named social media company, but it was, you know, Twitter, it was, you know, Google, like what you can get through searching. Um, but yes, I turned my gaze then to TikTok and I was also similarly optimistic and we'll see how wrong I, I turn out to be. <laughs> but it's, yes, it's true that Agnes is a true believer. And in terms of cult stories, when I was doing my own research into cult books, I didn't feel like I found so many books with the with the true reliever. There were a lot of like characters with doubts or characters who were just on board to play it safe. But I have always been fascinated by the psychology of you know what happens to you if you're really subsumed by something. Um, how do you climb up out of that? And Mirror Girls um, is a story that's set in the Jim Crow South, and that sounds like a very different thing. But when I talk to people, I'll sometimes say like what was Jim Crow except a brainwashing and cult situation? You know, brainwashing people to say this type of person is better, this type of person, you know, deserves this. And um, so I think that I'm always interested in sort of how our minds can be changed. And then the challenge for me with Agnes was applying enough pressure through the story to her character to help her snap out of sort of the dream state that she was in. And what shocked me was just how difficult that was to make it a believable transition. So yes, she gets the phone, but she might not care about the phone. She might not agitate to the, for the phone if her brother wasn't also sick and his life wasn't also at risk. And that she may not have been able to handle if her, if her parents were more active. Her parents have sort of like fallen out of her lives um, there were lots of like different variables. And, and I think we all live with this idea that, well, we could never be brainwashed. We would never wind up in a cult. But actually, you know, people do, and it's not because they're lesser than us. It's they're exposed to different forces and they have different things going on in their lives. And these kind of cult techniques, brainwashing, like disinformation campaigns, they're out there because they're extremely effective. And so that sort of like maze game of trying to find a believable way for Agnes's character to have the triumphant moment where she can escape from this cult um, was like one of the really fun challenges of the book. Well, uh, having been raised uh, extremely religious and then having gone to uh, school and obtained knowledge that, you know, wasn't just from one book. So, oh. <laughs> I, I like to think that one I'm keenly aware of, of just how how brainwashed how easily people can be brainwashed including myself and two I like to think that there's a bit of an inoculation that happens there mm -hmm. that afterwards I, I'm a lot more sensitive to anything that ever comes my way that oh okay um esteemed audience knows that I'm a, a flying saucer enthusiast but there's a lot of garbage out there and lots of entryways for for flying saucer based cults so it's like, oh, well, it, it's probably good that I had my religion early, that, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I, I've heard arguments similar to this. I know where this is going. <laughs> that inoculation theory is a great one. I love that. <laughs> Did you know that women should be submissive to the, yes, yes, I've heard it before. Oh, I've I don't heard know it what before. you're wrapping it up in. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's actually, it's it's funny just um, having even just done the research for this, the, the number of ways and places in our lives that people do try to exert a persuasive force. You know, you see it even in 
and this is a random aside <laughs> you don't necessarily have to include, but like even sort of in diet culture where people talk about the paleo diet and someone was trying to convince me why we should be eating only paleo foods. And well, it's because our ancestors ate da, 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 da. It was like, I feel like there might be some logical fallacies in there. There are some, some things that are being said that feel more persuasive to me than than anything else. So I think in general, you know, especially now in the world that we live in being a little bit skeptical whenever anyone has a vested interest in swaying you strongly to one black or white way of thinking or another um, is just always wise for where we are today. Except for when you're listening to this show, esteemed audience, if I said it's 100% true. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, I would ask you, I just know my background is in finance and I knew some financial consultants who were placing stock trades, stock trades with actual money based on um, something that a woman from their church who had visions in her dreams would come in and tell them. And then I guess God was, was very, was, was very, because he looked around the world. He's like, oh, starving people over here, sickness and pestilence over there. Nope. I'm going to focus on these fellas in Indiana who got to make some money on the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild i will say like um i grew up in arizona and um the southwest like we sometimes describe it as cult central like if you want to start a cult the southwest might be the place to do it i don't know if it's the heat i don't know if it's the wild west sensibility but they sure have started a lot of cults out there and um the cult that was like not next door, but the closest to me, it was the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which is not to be confused with the regular Mormon church. This was like an excommunicated off-branch, but they were constantly on television. It was like a source of fascination for a lot of these communities. And I remember there was one, one day when the FBI raided that compound and um, the women and children who lived there, it was very much, you know, the Agnes style world. They wore prairie dresses. They, you know, were in polygamous marriages. It was, you know, a whole thing. They had tons of children, very little education, limited access to healthcare. And um, the FBI came and raided this place and tried to get the women and children out and they refused to go. And I remember seeing that and wondering, like, how do you get to that place where help is perhaps being offered, but you can't take it? And what psychologically did that feel like to feel that these offers of aid were actually a tax? So it's just was something that I had been fascinated with for, for such a long time. That Fred Phelps serves that, or was he somebody, or what's sorry, I not Fred Phelps. Uh, oh, that was Jeff, Warren Jeffs was the, was the leader out there. And he's in prison now, but, but still operating the cult from afar. And this is the, um, the cult that you can also read about from John Krakauer. He wrote Under the Banner of Heaven, which I think was recently turned into a television series. Um, but the book that is my favorite, if you want to read about this topic and that most directly inspired Agnes was Escape by Carolyn Jessups. She was the first woman to escape from that cult with all of her children and the like mental fortitude that that took. It's just, it's, it's an amazing read. It's an amazing story and it's very powerful to see um, you know, what she had to go through to sort of get out to the other side. And a lot of it was that she, you know, she did have her children and she wanted them to, to survive and, and to see a better world. And some of that, I, you know, did try to act, echo with Agnes and her little brother, Ezekiel, who is not going to be able to survive in this cult landscape that they're in. So, so a Netflix series, if you're curious, esteemed audience called Keep, Keep Sweet and Obey. Uh, keep sweet and obey, pray and obey, I think. 
I don't keep sweet looking up on Netflix and I come right up and it's, it's the story of Warren Jeffs. And I remember they, they interviewed a, a woman who admitted that at 19, she still thought that, uh, that babies were brought by the stork. Uh, she had no idea that intercourse was a thing at 19. Uh, and then they interview women who later in the cult were worried that Warren Jeffs wouldn't come and take their children. They didn't leave the cult. And when he came and he took their children, I, oh, well, I guess this is God's will and gave them over. It's just madness. Like, how, how does this happen to a person? And I, I read uh, a quote from you in, a, in another interview. I wanted to make sure I asked you about, uh, about that very thing. Let's see that. Um, that we all kind of have a, a, a natural, let's see, every human being has a need to believe in something larger than themselves. So why do you think that is? And what do we do about it? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a scary, lonely world. There, we, we have a spiritual dimension to our lives because it's a real need. You know, I, I like what, whatever, however that manifests. Like for me these days, it's really art and literature sort of filling that space for me, but you can't have kind of nothing in that space. There's kind of like, you know, you just go to work, you eat, you know, you, there's, there's something that you have to believe in something. Otherwise you're going to feel alienation. You're going to feel disconnection and it can be, um, really very painful. And so when people actually go through spiritual crises, like part of it is they may not want to leave the cult because, well, then, then what, what's out there for them after that? What do they believe in? What's, what's bigger than them? How do they feel connected to the greater universe? I, I think we don't necessarily talk about that as much in culture because it's complex with, you know, religion, but it really doesn't even have to be religion. Just that sense of that something is larger than you, that there's a meaning that you can get in touch with in some kind of way. And, um, the cruelest thing that I think you can really do to a person is use that need for, for connection, for spirituality against them. And like, that's really what we see in cults is that they're weaponizing the very human need to feel like there's something bigger than, than yourself. And, and they're using it to, to torture them and trap them and make them smaller. They'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, whatever the force is that, they, that they've convinced you to believe in, you're letting them down if you do this, that, or the other. And it's really amazing the things that people will give up and the things that people will do to stay connected. They will go through periods of hunger. They'll, they'll stop eating. They'll lose or give up children. It's um, just a very powerful way to control people. And I think it's, it's really tragic too, because on the other hand, we see that when we're in touch with the spiritual side of ourselves, we can, we can like, it's the angels of our better nature. You know, that's what helps us to make sacrifices that do good things for others. That's what helps us to change the world. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just such a shocking sort of affront to me when, when you see that getting twisted because those people in, in, in the cult, you can think like, well, they must be weaker or they're, they're not that smart. That would be sort of like communities that I was raised in, what maybe they would, would say ungenerously about that type of person. And it's like, no, like maybe they're, they're looking towards something greater and that was just used against them, that it's not a sign actually at all of, of weakness in them, but maybe even strength. In Agnes's story, she does not stop believing in God just because she's experienced 
this prophet who tried to twist the idea of God to control her and to hurt her and the people that she loved. She hangs on to that. It's difficult. She hangs on to it and she has to, in the end, sort of forge her own connection with her sense of what God is and, and what God needs from her. Um, and I don't think that she necessarily would have been able to survive the story if she, if she hadn't done that. But it was like, when I wrote it, there, there was a version where she, she swept it all under the rug. And it was empty for her and it was, it was frightening and it wasn't enough. She needed that to sustain herself. And so to me, part of Agnes's strength was really that she, she didn't throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> she knew that this was an important thing for her and she was able to find her own more healthy way to have that spiritual connection that, that she as a person just really needed. She's, she's just a character with an acute sense of spirituality and need for spirituality. And I'm sure there's, you know, a spectrum of needs for people who needs it and, um, you know, to what extent. And, and Agnes was not going to be the same person. She could not be the true believer on one page and then believe in nothing on the next page, she had to find something else or create something else to believe in. Well, in all fairness, and then in the case of Agnes, there are extenuating circumstances. She, I don't know how much we wanna talk about the prayer space, but she does have a direct connection to some spiritual uh, abilities. She does, yeah, Agnes, um, there's, there's a way in which it's also a superhero story and her sort of superpower is her spiritual connection to what she calls the prayer space um, or what she used to call the prayer space before sort of her community basically told her, no, like you can't have this direct connection with God because only the prophet is allowed to have that connection. Um, because she, if she knew something to be true, if that were allowed, there's no way that she would end up in this, that she would be able to stay in this cult. So she does have this, you know, very special spiritual sense. And in her case, she's kind of extinguished it or suffocated it for most of the years of her life. And that's right. That's, you know, when she gets on the other side of it, that's kind of what roars up and is there for her later. That brings me to a, a question about writing. When you've got a character that has a sort of superpower, which by the way, one of the many things that won me over, one thing that won me over is that her brother Ezekiel, when he's trying to determine whether or not he could trust the outsiders, they show him Batman and he's like, oh, well, yes. And I 100% <laughs> yes. agree with Ezekiel, whichever side's got Batman on it, that's the side you wanna be on, it's okay. Uh, but when you're, uh, when you're dealing with a character like Agnes, who has a spiritual power and more, who has every reason to believe that God is, is acting and is acting hopefully on her behalf, um, how do you navigate that without the store, without killing your, your suspense, without while keeping the threat to Agnes very real? Yeah, that was, was very, very tricky. And um I did a lot of reading into like various types of religious texts because you're right. Like if you know in advance too much that you're the chosen one, like what in whatever sort of supernatural structure we're in, like if Luke Skywalker knew that the force was always gonna protect him, we would not have a story. And we also though wouldn't have a Luke Skywalker because you wouldn't have the type of courage that he needed to, to be his own hero in that story. Um, so for Agnes and for the way I sort of conceptualized it, and I don't want to sort of tread on too much on any sort of real religious belief or thinking I'm not a preacher, you know, but just, um, it was always a test. 
So yes, she had access to, to this communication line. She had access to power, to this superpower. But there's, there's a hint that maybe the prophet did too, and he abused it. And by failing the test, he lost that connection. So for Agnes, it's, yes, you have this connection now, but if you choose the wrong path, if you make the wrong step, it's something that can be lost. And so that's where she still needs all of her courage and all of her bravery to keep going forward. So 20, 2017, um, we just uh, elected slash been, uh, had, a, had a, a tyrant imposed upon us. That's going on. You've just had a child. Why is 2017 the time for Kelly McWilliams? Of all the things you could write about, why this world? Why these characters? Or is that a fair question? Do you do you feel like writers have a choice of, of that sort of thing? Uh, you know, I've been really thinking a lot about that lately because I'm trying to choose my next project. And um, I honestly would love to believe that we don't have choice. <laughs> that it's just, it's whatever the muse throws at you. You know, you like, you work through it and you manifest it. But well, uh, it doesn't work out. It's the muse's fault. That's the, right. the I can so, do. so many to blame. Right. Exactly. The muse did not give me a bestseller this year, <laughs> but it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I like, I do think about writing as it's, it's my way for working through what really scares me. It's like night, like a lucid nightmare, you know, a lot of the times. And I do write a lot of horror and a lot of ghost stories and, and I'm, I'm reckoning with things that really upset or destabilize me. And I do notice that they, they tend to generally follow a lot of like current events or else, you know, major life events. So I think, you know, becoming a parent, you know, I was really reckoning with that with Agnes and how she is with Ezekiel. She's sort of his main person and responsible for keeping him alive and I had just had this little critter that I needed to keep alive, you know, and um, while also keeping, you know, your own soul and your own self alive and staying connected with, you know, those things that are greater than you. And, um, you know, my, my next book after that, Mirror Girls, I, I wrote um, in the shadow of, of Black Lives Matter and, and the loss of George Floyd. And, and that book is very much reckoning with my mixed race and biracial identity. Um, I always knew that I would write a book about being a light-skinned, you know, white presenting person with a black parent. But, you know, the fact that I wrote it then, um, I think speaks to maybe there was something that I needed to work through there. And I don't want to make it sound like writing is just a therapy, <laughs> therapy session for us. You know, I think it's also there, there's a legitimate sort of giving that you're trying trying to do you're trying to give of yourself like what wisdom you have this is there's no way I'm going to come off sounding sounding less than bonkers saying this but there's you know a time and a place to say something that you hope others will be able to hear you send out this message in a bottle you know you do your best to craft it for you know that person you've never met who nonetheless lives in the same world as you and um so I think that's you know it's just all sorts of different things it's a really complex question well, even I don't know that your you know your your mileage may vary, but I it's been my experience that I'll say, well, I'm not going to do that this time. I, I I've resolved all of my issues. That's <laughs> obviously that no longer uh, will I be plagued by by any of those wrong thoughts that I used to have. All right and correct, starting now. Um, but uh, if I if I want to write a simple, straightforward narrative, none of my personal stuff's going to get in there. By the time I get to the end of that book, it will have snuck in without my intending it. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And 
you, I mean, if you, if you really want to look in a mirror, like a true mirror, it's read the last novel that you wrote. <laughs> you will see things in there that you had no intention of putting in there. And, and, but there they are. And, and actually I find like, I don't, I don't know if this is true for you too, but the more books you write, the more you start to see like the repetitive the themes, the things that I return to again and again, whether it's like tropes or ideas or characters there are things that just seem to need to come out in any novel that, that I write. Um, and I've heard this from my mother too. She said like, well, looking back on all the books I wrote, people say they're so different, but she sees ways in which she's trying to get at the same thing or send the same message in these different ways. And that it, it can really kind of startle you to see what you're trying to say without necessarily meaning to say it. And I'm sure that's just, that's the art bit um, if not the muse, that's the, you know, whatever is in the unconscious going on. I'm convinced that all of my novels are zombie novels. Um, I just church up the zombies and they, they seem to be something else because ultimately I am afraid of other people. Uh, and with good reason, I might add. <laughs> totally fair. Are, yeah. <laughs> <terrifying>. <laughs> Yes, sure. no, it's it's true. Like if I even look at, you know, uh, the works of other other artists, like my favorite show growing up was The X-Files. And it's like, it's a monster of the week format, you know? Um, but in a way it's all the same monster. Like if you, if you think about it thematically, it's, you know, what threatens our sort of belief system, our standing as people, like what destabilizes, I guess, sort of the country for Boulder and Scully. It's, 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 I think sometimes these like anthology stories or the Twilight Zone is, is similar, can tell us a lot about like what we're scared of and um, really without meaning to, because we try to make different monsters. <laughs> but the monster in the mirror is often the same too. The X-Files was one of those uh, shows that obviously classic, uh, but had a kind of a built-in problem by the time you got to about season two or three where Scully's still being the skeptic. Like, really? 55 <laughs> episodes, you saw a monster each and every time. Sometimes it was an alien, but maybe not this time. I don't know, Scully. There, there comes a point where the evidence is definitely on the other side of the scale. <laughs> it's very true. That was for sure the built-in problem there. <laughs> But uh, a couple more questions uh, about Agnes, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk more broadly about your career. But again, uh, I, I desperately need help, <laughs> so I'm going to learn uh, from 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 your novel before I, I pick up on mine. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is when you're writing about these contemptible characters, such as the the reverend or, or Agnes's father, and to a lesser extent, Agnes's mother, I'm able to feel a bit of sympathy for Agnes' mother, who appears, she's she's literally um, at one point eating herself to death. She's, she's just dying away in a bed, but at the same time, like, get up! Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do something! <laughs> but when you're writing about these contemptible people, uh, and there's a little bit of humor. One of my favorite phrases is, is Beth has been given a gift and she threw her arms around his neck. Is it from Walmart from? She gasped at the delicious forbiddenness of it. The cosmetic style, which, <laughs> which I could totally see uh, a bumpkin like the folks where I grew up. I might've said that at a certain point. Oh my God, from the Walmart, how, how, how special. Um, where, how do you tread that line where... Uh, we want to have a bit of humor, but you don't want to mock your subject and you don't want to have just open contempt for them, though they are indeed contemptible. That's, um, that's a tricky one. And that was definitely something that was tough to work through with Agnes. Like 
my editor's notes were often, you know, oh, they're feeling very stock villain. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about terrible things that happen or people who do terrible things, just the easiest and, um, and, and least troubling thing to do is to, to reach for that stock villain shelf. Um, and occasionally I have a stock villain in Agnes, you know, like my, my sort of my big bad in there is, is more stock than the rest. Um, if, you know, for the sake of the story, that can be okay, but that's not really confronting like, well, what makes people go bad and what is badness really like? Um, and how are we maybe implicated in it when we, when we don't realize it? Like what, what, how, you know, these people are still human. Like what is, um, what is a way to give them their humanity while still recognizing that the things that they do are really can be evil and, and, and twisted and wrong. And one of the things that I lean on is this idea of like just generational trauma that none of these people were born in a vacuum. Like they, you know, have these lines in the book that go deep back to the founding of Red Creek, which is the sort of culty town that, that I made up that it's, that it's set in. Um, and, you know, even farther back than that. And it's um, the idea that they, they didn't create themselves, you know, that there were also external forces and pressures for them that could squeeze them into one shape or another. There's no sort of inherent easy evil, or at least I didn't try to, to make it that way. Um, at work in Agnes, there's not so much of an idea of, of a devil. It's really what happens when, when human beings take a hard wrong turn. Um, and not just once and not just twice, but for, for hundreds of years, if you, if you count what's been passed down to them. And that's how I think we really get um, the people that we might think of as, as really monsters today. It's, it's not, it didn't, you know, couldn't even happen in one lifespan. You're talking about the pressures of hundreds of years. Got you. Uh, and that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. As, as from, from a craft perspective, it's just um, respecting every character, you know, and really, and trying to see, see things from, from their side. Um, for instance, in Agnes, and I don't, I don't know if this is as, as much a spoiler, I guess I, maybe I won't say like which character, but you know, one character is able to leave the cult and one character isn't. Um, but it's not, it doesn't drop along lines of like, well, one character was good and brave and the other character was just a bad character or weak character. It's, there are complex circumstances that sort of lead to that. And I, you know, there is also something to be said for like the, the writer, every character you write is some echo of a part of you. And even the evil characters, if you're really in touch with them, like that's coming from something that you understand and you know too. So you just try not to reach for that stock villain shelf and do your best <laughs> it's hard <laughs> i mean we're all humans there's always going to be some selfish impulse that even if we don't act on it we understand why somebody might want to and you can you can imagine you know the, the different breaking bad type scenario that would have to get you from a nice teacher to a meth dealer there's there's yeah. something that could that could happen to all of us that could make us a little bit more villainous than we're at i think but that's I right. don't know. maybe that's how villains get a pass <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. That's so true. We don't want to give villains a pass, but I, I do think that it's always better and more fruitful to look at like villainous systems than villainous individuals. Like, cause we don't, we don't want to just keep creating <laughs> villainous individuals. We want to like, look at, well, what's really going on here is maybe the more sort of important question sometimes. 
I was never in any kind of a fundamentalist sect. I do get that question a lot. I have always been fascinated by those sects and how they still exist today. Well, it's sort of a compliment to your writing, um, but it's, it's it's so convincing and compelling that well, the only way she could know this is she has to have uh, some sort of experience having having been in a in a cult or. Yeah, I had um, uh, someone write me from you know out Arkansas and asked if I had ever spent any time at, at like the Duggars Church, um, and it was like, no, I have not. I did watch the Duggars back in the day for sort of research, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. And and one of the things that I have learned from writing Agnes, I've gotten a lot of notes from people who have um, come out of sort of fundy or fundamentalist background. It's a, I think it's a much larger group of people than we're used to thinking about it as, that a lot of people have to peel themselves out of a religion or a belief system that is, is harmful to them. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. And I, I like to think that if you're doing it right, religion is not a static thing. It's mm -hmm. a thing that grows and evolves. And, and uh, although in my case, uh, and I think of a lot of people, uh, people's cases because I was raised religious my first building blocks of thought are based around magical thinking once upon a time the world was animated and snakes could talk okay go on uh, because of that when I encounter things later in life I have to be very cautious like wait a minute that I know that I, I have this blind spot because instead of being told about science and uh, about facts and reason I was told that those are crazy. Focus on the, the the one true thing over here about a talking snake. I got to be careful. <laughs> That's so interesting. And sometimes I think that I'm almost too cautious because you know I'm, I'm once bitten twice shy. Where there could be something that uh, that if I were a little bit more open, that there might be something interesting there. But I shut it down immediately because nope, I've, I've you know I've been fooled once. That's so interesting. Yeah, maybe we should do like a Mulder Scully spectrum. <laughs> Although I guess she always had the Catholicism. So that was like a complicating factor, right? But <laughs> yeah. where are you on the, on the dyad? <laughs> yeah. Wait, it depends on, on, on which year you ask me. Yeah, right. <laughs> like right after the January 6th insurrection, when I saw Eugene Goodman lead the crowd away, I was like, nope, I'm not buying it. Reality is not real. There's no way that I could never put that in a story. That would not be satisfying. That's a crazy coincidence that if you were to tell me later that, um, you know, it was Agnes and I had a suit. That the, <laughs> the <laughs> it was a religious prophetic person, not just, not just a guy that was on duty and did the right thing at the right moment. Well, fair enough. I think we've, uh, we've covered religion, we've covered politics, so that's rude enough. Let's move on. <laughs> Talk a, a bit about your background. Uh, so circling back to uh, the idea of your mother as a novelist, because your, uh, your mother is a best-selling novelist who you've done a lot of promotion with. It's Jewel Parker Rhodes, whose latest book is, um, oh shoot, it's got, what is her latest book? It's got her latest is Paradise on Fire. And it's about um, a, a young girl and her, um, a, a group of kids who are out in the wilderness doing one of these sort of out of the city wilderness ex uh, experiences who are threatened by wildfires. So super timely, it's getting a new cover, I think, 
you know, by, by August. And, um, it's a really, really good book. If you like, if you have a kid in your life, she writes middle grade fiction. Um, at least now when I was a kid, she was writing fiction for adults. But if you, if you have a kid always looking for middle grade, you cannot go wrong with a Jewel Parker Rhodes book. And Mr. Rhodes, if you're listening, uh, you want to go anytime. Yes, no, I'm sure she, she actually, she would, she would love to connect and she loves doing podcasts and talking about her work. But before Paradise on Fire, she had Black Brother, Black Brother. And um, then her big seller was uh, Ghost Boys. Um, and she also wrote Towers Falling. So she, she's another one who like engages with current socio-political things. And she's another one too, who always has some sort of religious or magical character wending their way through their books. So maybe a good fit for you. Um, so she, she's a, I mean, do you remember a time before she was a writer or was she always a writer your, your entire life? She was always a writer, but, um, you know, because I am interested in this sort of like generational, generational things, um, she, uh, grew up without much in, in Pittsburgh and she went to school because she was a dancer. So she had this sort of dance talent. Um, and so she went to a junior college for dance. And that was kind of her way out and gonna be her escape at the time um, from the poverty that she grew up with. And one day at junior college, she went to the library and she found a book by Gail Foreman called Corregidora. And she looked at the bio on the back of the book and it was a, it was a black woman. And she had no idea until that moment that black women wrote books. And the way she tells the story anyway, <laughs> that day she changed her major to be creative writing that she wanted to study English and she wanted to study creative writing. She had always loved books. She carried tons of books with her wherever she went, but she truly did not know that, um, that it was possible for someone who, who looked like her, for someone who came from the background she did to write fiction. But after that, she really, she never turned back. She went through school and um, she published her first adult novel um, a couple years after I was born, she also started writing that one um, while she was pregnant with me. And that book was called Voodoo Dreams. And it was the story of Marie Laveau. And after that, she wrote Magic City about the Tulsa race riots. Um, the race massacre now is the way we talk about it. Um, but this was, you know, way back in the day. So she was kind of blazing those trails with, you know, black literary fiction. Um, she wrote a book about Frederick Douglass and then um, many other books after that and eventually started writing for children. So I always grew up with like a mother who wasn't afraid to speak through stories and through fiction. There was no question in my mind that I could also write books if I wanted to. That was like a door that she opened for me um, and a door that maybe she had wished that she'd also opened a door for me to be a dentist one day. <laughs> <laughs> a little more of a secure career, but that didn't happen. She used to um, write every single day um, that we were kids and she put a sign up on her door that said like, children keep out <laughs> writing. <laughs> and I thought, well, there must be some sort of magic going on be behind that door. And so from a pretty young age, I started just mimicking that and, and writing behind my closed door too. <laughs> you know, my, you know, juvenilia <laughs> and just, yeah, I always wanted to sort of follow in those footsteps. What's funny is we write very different books. Um, and I've always gravitated more towards young adult fiction, which she's sort of never been as interested in or never hasn't done yet in any case. Um, so it's been, it's been a wild ride. And when Black Brother, Black Brother came out and Agnes came out that sort of 2020, 
she had all these bookstore events lined up. I had all these bookstore events for, for my debut and they all disappeared because of the pandemic, everything switched to virtual. So we decided, well, maybe we'll try and do this kind of virtual tour and see what happens. And I don't know that we really sold any books that way. It's one of those things, you know, nobody knows, but we did get to hang out together in a year when we probably wouldn't have seen each other sort of living in, in different places. So that was pretty cool. Oh, and we do have a book that we uh, wrote together that will be coming out. It's a picture book um, called Soul Step. Not sure about the pub date yet, but it's it's in the works. And so you were able to collaborate together creatively and not have a blow up that ended your relationship. <laughs> the trick is not have a blow up that ends your relationship. You can have the blow up can happen, <laughs> but you just want to make sure you keep pushing through there and. Um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been kind of a funny journey. Your impulse on the story is wrong here. Also that thing you did when I was five. <laughs> it it helped. I will tell you, it helps to have the Trump card granddaughter. <laughs> I was be like, look at this cute picture of Clara. You can't stay mad at me. <laughs> so is that, so picture book is a, is a nice warm up. Could you, could you see the two of you collaborating on a longer middle grade or young adult novel at some point? We've talked about that, and, and I, do, I do think that we, um, you know, authors are, like, the novelist is kind of a funny creature, because we really have full creative control, and I think we really get used to it. Um, I'm not sure that a longer project would, would work out as well. We've talked about, oh, well, we could write different perspectives, but we always also have that kind of, like, break in the drawbridge that my voices tend towards young adult voices and she is very much a middle grade voice and we've actually kind of both tried to do one or the other but I haven't developed a middle grade voice yet I have like so much nothing but respect for people who are able to capture that I think it's much more difficult than writing for young adults I don't think writing for young adults is much more difficult than writing for adults <laughs> my unpopular opinion <laughs> but um uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but she's also one of those people who she's always got several irons in the fire and several projects coming up. Well, for whatever it's worth, having written all three, I think middle grade is the hardest of the three. And I haven't even uh, attempted more than one or two drafts of picture books because that's way too hard for me. Oh my gosh, the picture books, you know, it's essentially, it's like writing a poem. And what is harder than that? I mean, it was really, that was a really tricky one. So um, something that I noticed about you, and I wondered how much your, um, your, your, your mother might have played a role in this. You published your first book at age 15, Doorstop. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I wrote, um, like when I sort of had that door shut and, and was working, I wrote a draft of a, of a book called Doormat. And um, that's one that's is especially strange to look back in terms of looking back and what themes was I interested in. It's, it's really, really unsettling when you see that the things you were writing about when you were 15, you're still echoing. That's when you're like, whoa, you get the real creepy crawlies. <laughs> That's a very strange idea. Um, but yeah, I, I put together like a draft over one summer when I didn't have that much going on. And, and I left my room after mostly writing and, um, it was, it's a book about, um, for, um, among other things, a theme is teen pregnancy. And so I hadn't known this at the time, but apparently I was asking questions and doing kind of research. And my mother was concerned, you know, <laughs> like 
yeah, I'd gotten myself into some sort of situation, but it was a story about actually the best friend of someone who's, she gets pregnant and then her best friend tells the story about what do they do um, as um, basically eighth graders. And so it was a, it was an interesting little story to write and I gave it to her and she sent it over to her agent who was not interested in representing it. But the agent that I still work with to this day was a junior agent at that company who sort of picked the book up and said, well, let's just give this a shot. Now, I do not recommend that young people publish books <laughs> when they're young. There's, you know, it's, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of pressure. Um, it was like an interesting experience to go through, but very high impact too. And yes, um, doormat, not doorstop. Shame on me. <laughs> Close enough. I don't know why people still like to come on this show crazy. <laughs> so that that book comes out, and why why would you not recommend it? Was it just you weren't emotionally ready for how the market was going to take it, or you know, I they I didn't really. I think when you're still a teenager and when you're still going through this kind of personality development, it's very hard to to ask you to kind of go on the road. And, and be the personality who's, who's selling your book because that personality just isn't fixed. Like I remember mostly what I felt about that book was almost kind of like, I mean, I was proud that I'd finished it and that I'd done it. And that was kind of the spirit that I went into. It was like, let's see if I could write a novel the way someone might be like, let's see if I can run a marathon. And I could not run a marathon, but I did write this novel. But then it's like, you're saying this, this piece of work you put out, this like utterance that you made, that's who you are and that reflects your values. And so then when you have these conversations, like the one that we're having now, it's like, well, let's, let's talk about those values. And I was like, no, <laughs> like, I don't know what I think. You know, I just want to, I just want to go camping with my friends. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the main thing is that, you know, I think um, writing when you're young is great and it's a great outlet. I think being a writer when you're young is a tougher ask. Um, and I do kind of keep track of like the young people who publish when they're teenagers and, and their careers. And there have been some really amazing ones. The very famous writer at the time when I was doing that was Amelia Atwater Rhodes. She was the sort of doing her vampire novels, which were really the um, precursors to Twilight, which we had, you know, many decades later. Um, and of course we had Essie Hinton who kind of in, we talk about maybe invented the YA genre, wrote The Outsiders. So young people's voices in YA, they've always been there. Um, but I think, you know, being a, a writer, sort of starting your career at that time is, is a vexed thing because you have so much more evolution and development to go through. And the agent that I worked with then, you know, after that, I, I did feel pressure, like going through college, like to try and put out a second book. It felt like, well, I did this thing that people thought was special at the time. I should do it again. And his advice to me was, you know, just wait, just take your time, like find your life, find out who you are, you know, set some stable things in place for yourself and then see, you know, if you still have a message that you want to get out there. Um, and that was the best thing that I could have done was just to wait. And then um, eventually Agnes came along. That's 2007 that comes out and then you don't start Agnes for till 2017. So for a decade there, you're a prophet who's wandering in the desert waiting to get your message, right? What, uh, what, what's going on that decade other than uh, finding somebody you want to have a child with? Yeah, it was a uh, school. It was, uh, I studied um, not creative writing, but, but English literature and particularly Victorian literature. I did a lot of reading and I thought for a while there, maybe like being a literature professor would be for me, but 
boy, I'm glad I didn't go that direction now. It was a tough job market at the time and it only got tougher. Um, I moved to New York City um, to work with a nonprofit that did sort of literacy work in schools. And so for a while I thought maybe teaching would be a career path for me. Um, but I just, I did not, I was not quite good enough. That is probably one of the hardest jobs out there. And, you know, I just didn't have quite, um, it was, it's also a tough one to, to stay into. And, um, yeah, so I decided maybe that wasn't for me and maybe the writing was kind of poking up through the ground then and saying like, Oh, maybe you should get back to this, but saw a lot of theater in New York and made a lot of friends. And it was indeed like my wayward twenties. <laughs> So now you're you're back with inventions. There's there's two books available, a picture book on the way. You've got a third that's in copy edits now. Um, you're you're happy established as an author, and to the best of your knowledge, especially as much as anybody knows. Anytime I start talking about plans, I re, I ask myself, what were you planning in 2019? But <laughs> as far as you know, uh, probably going to continue being a, a novelist for the foreseeable future. I sure hope so. I I do really enjoy it, and I feel like I've kind of um, you know found something that, that makes me happy and that complements my life. And I like talking to other writers and I like talking to readers. And so it's, it's been a wonderful thing. I, I don't know if um, this was the same for you, but you know, you build these friendships and relationships after you put your de debut out or my second debut technically, but the one that I sort of treated as my debut, you make sort of a network of people who are also coming out with books in that time. And it becomes sort of like a graduating class vibe. There's, you know, the Facebook groups and the connections you make. And um, it's just been a fun way to be in the world to sort of have those connections of people who love just writing and reading. I know my favorite people in the world are writers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, Mirror Pearl. So the first line of your biography uh, currently uh, is, I'm a mixed race writer. Why is that the first line? Why is it important for you to make that distinction? So I am an interesting segment of my racial identity, like we, where I am light enough to pass for white. Um, you know, my mother is black. My father is Norwegian. <laughs> it's like... The mix, my brother could not pass for white, but as the cards fell, I can. Um, and so in terms of figuring out what art I wanna make and how I wanna speak in the world, you know, I, I, I don't just identify it as a black writer or a white writer. It felt like that mixed race space was, was where I was really coming from. And for Agnes, you know, I think you can kind of see some of the themes that are important um, that have to do with mixed race identity. The idea of like inside and outside and trying to find your place in the world, trying to solidify like maybe a contested identity. Um, and, but Mirror Girls is my first book that really looks at it sort of head on. There are mixed race characters and, and a black character and Agnes as well. Um, but feminism was sort of the main theme that I was looking on at the time. And I think, you know, in terms of like looking at that mirror, there are ways that I was trying to sort out identity issues too. Mirror Girls is really specifically about mixed race identity and particularly mixed race identity in um, the 1950s Jim Crow South. So it's a story of twin sisters, one of whom is light enough to pass for white and the other who is obviously black who are separated at birth after the murder of their parents. Um, Charlie, who is 
lives a life as a black girl is whisked away to Harlem by her grandmother after this murder. Um, but Magnolia, who's the light-skinned child, is kept down south and raised as the heiress to a cotton plantation um, in Georgia. And she's told nothing about her racial heritage. But there are ghostly and supernatural forces at work um, that bring these sisters together again in Georgia. Um, and they have to learn, you know, can they fix what's been broken at this point? Can they be sisters again? Can they bridge those gaps? And Magnolia also importantly has to ask herself, um, you know, who am I? Because at that time, you couldn't be a mixed race girl. That was not an option. It was the rule was one drop of black blood makes you black. So her entire community was going to ostracize her if she decided that she was going to be a black girl. And it's not a spoiler, this happens pretty early. That's the decision that she makes, you know, to try and find her sister, to try to be with her sister and build a life with her. Um, but yeah, so that's the, the second book that I had up. It's, uh, lots of lots of questions uh, about Mirror Girls. Um, we might, I'm, uh, I don't know if you could tell here on the screen, I am, I'm, I'm Caucasian. Uh, my wife is African-American and we were dating for a while and we got married shortly after Barack Obama became president because it's a new America. Oh, <laughs> oh thank God. It's a, <laughs> we don't have to worry about the past so much anymore. That's uh, and, and, and now, of course, Senator Mike Brown of Indiana noted scumbag for a number of reasons, but would like to make our marriage federally illegal, as would many other uh, conservative fellows. Uh, so the past isn't the past, it's, it's not even past, as they say. Uh, and I've read elsewhere that you said that, uh, that as a writer of color, the uh, emotions and grief that I feel I've been just pouring into this manuscript so what, what about our current uh, age? Um, I, I know I've heard you talk elsewhere about uh, George Floyd's uh, murder in particular was heavy on your mind as you're writing about this. What made Mirror Girls the, the vehicle for you to, to synthesize all of these feelings that you were having? Well, you know, Mirror Girls, it's like above all, like a family story. It's the story of how are these sisters who were separated for so long going to find their way back to each other? And can they even be a family? Um, which goes to those questions of like sort of illegal marriages and like, can they even be a family in that situation? Um, my family growing up, we had some problems with being taken seriously as a complete unit and as, as a family. Um, we spent, we grew up mostly in California and Arizona and people had a real uh, sort of gut level problem with the way that we presented. So like if I was um, at the grocery store with um, my father and my brother, people would say, well, how nice that, that he adopted <laughs> my brother. Um, and the poor kid, like he had nightmares actually for many years that he was adopted and not part of our family. Um, but if I was with my mother, well, then she must be the nanny. And so these kind of assumptions that that color brings up in people and the ways that people feel they need to immediately understand everything about you and categorize you. Um, there's just a, there's a, there's an anger and like a level of intensity to that, that I really wanted to examine, especially as we were in a moment that really felt like a, like a shocking kind of backlash to what I, where I thought we'd made progress, you know, where I thought that we had sort of, that we weren't going to be, you know, in, in California with my family, we had Rodney King and it felt like 
then we had Obama, you know, as you said, we felt like we had sort of moved forward, but in fact, we were kind of, there's, there's always something else that comes back. And then we had George Floyd and it felt like we were trapped in this kind of spiral, this circle, and that particularly these, these families were never going to be able to, to have a place where they could be considered a family and taken seriously as a family. Um, and so those ideas of like separation and segregation were really important to me. There's um, like another little bit that you might have seen elsewhere, but you know, this stuff, it goes so deep um, and it goes so you know deep into all of our families that are sort of mixed race. But um, when my mother gave birth to me in Maryland, um, she actually almost lost me that day. She had had a C-section and um, a nurse took me away for some sort of a test or a check. And when they, the nurse brought, came back with a brown baby boy. And even though they had different wristbands, you know, they had different names. It was just in her mind, you know, this light-skinned child could not belong with my mother. And so she tells a story about how she had to get up out of bed and, and holler for me and, and track me down. And in that sort of moment that, of fear, she, she kind of knew what it would be like sometimes to try to be our type of family, sort of an uphill battle, fight against the wave. Um, so a lot of that, like I wanted to work through the story and I didn't want to set it in a contemporary time. I wanted to set it sort of at the moment that I felt a lot of these problems had really began, which was that Jim Crow segregation idea, that separate but equal sort of ancient lie that, um, is one of the ways that our society was kind of like split down the middle. And so facing that color line was, I think, an important plot mechanic for me to sort of bring out some of these themes and these stories about belonging and um, sort of how we exist together as, as a mixed race community. I, um trying to think what's 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 a good follow-up question to that then I, I certainly unfortunately uh, can can relate somewhat uh, just because my my son uh, depending on when in his development you check had, has been multiple skin tones um uh, continuing to change and to find whatever it's going to be is his ultimate but um very early on he was a spitting image of me um and so my wife would take him with her to go shopping and people, total strangers in Barack Obama's America, uh, would walk up to her uh, and say, whose child is that? It's like, well, who do you care? <laughs> it's, it's mind your business, go, go shop. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's within the, uh, the last decade that that unfortunately is still very much with us. And that question, like, what do you care? You know, that's like the heart of it. That's like what we all need to sort of no, like why are people policing other people's families? That's the really scary thing. And that's where there's so much danger, you know, danger of like being separated. That's such a nightmare. I'm sorry that happens to you guys too. Wow, I mean, there was, there was a Cheerios commercial with an interracial family two years ago and the internet absolutely lost its mind. Every time they recast a superhero as a character of a different race, People go nuts as though it was all fine and realistic until you change that. That was the most important part. Jim Jim Gordon can't be Jeffrey Wright. This is now the whole Batman mythos becomes somewhat unrealistic. Oh, oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> just 
just absolute uh, madness that uh, hopefully we'll, 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 we'll see some more improvement on in our lifetime would, would be nice. But one thing you had mentioned earlier that, that has struck me uh, as, as well is this idea of people having certain beliefs, cult-like beliefs uh, around not just religion, but around race, uh, race around, race, around uh, society, around uh, different people's roles. Um, I critiqued some fiction for an extremely conservative person. Uh, and I did it because it was kind of a trial run for I've got some family members that I, I have not been speaking to in my eye. At some point, I have to just find a way to possibly talk to them or maybe not. I, I still haven't decided for certain how I'm going to handle that. But I, this was my trial run. And what I noticed with this, this person's writing is that it was consistent across the board. It was not just people of different races people who don't believe the way this person believes, like across the board, it was cartoonish versions of almost every person in their life to the, uh, to the point where I, well, maybe this is just a problem of, 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 of the world being unconsidered for so many people that you haven't had to develop empathy, that you haven't had to think, what would it be like to be in this person's shoes? And I don't know what we do about that. Uh, I want to say continue to produce art, but there's there's a lot of art in the world, and these 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 problems persist. What do you think we do? I mean, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm sort of in my next book, which is called the one that I is is just finishing up and will be out in May. Is more focused on sort of activism and what do we do when it just feels like we've been doing so much and not getting necessarily as far as we'd like, although we have gotten quite far when you look back to, you know, where we really started. It's been scary lately because we make the art, but then people ban the art. <laughs> so then the kids can't get access to it. And that is, um, that is like, a, has been a shocking and disheartening turn of events. Um, and we'll see where that goes, but Mirror Girls as a story was very much focused on how do you internally continue to survive in a world that wants to tell you that your family is not a legitimate family and that, that you are less than someone else because of the color of your skin or that you can't belong with certain people. And my characters sort of are trying to get in touch with like, what is the type of inner strength? What is the belief in that something that's greater than you, you know, similar to Agnes that allows you to keep moving through a world like that. And so I think that part of the question, you know, we answer internally, but then in terms of how do we affect this external world? How do we try to change things so that the world isn't sending us these messages and, and harming our children in these ways? Um, I did try to write a book more about, about activism. And this book is called your plantation prom is not okay. <laughs> and um, it's a story uh, told by a, a girl named Harriet who's been raised on um, a plantation turned enslaved people's museum in modern day Louisiana. And um, she's a TikTok activist by the end of the book um, because she's, she's tired of people coming to um, to these plantations to, to throw parties, to throw weddings. She feels like she's been, you know, screaming that this is wrong for so many years. Her community has been screaming that this, that this is wrong and nobody is listening. And so that's exactly the problem that she tries to confront is, well, how do we get people to listen? 
And unfortunately, I wish that I could say she found like a really easy answer that was not as difficult as it turned out to be. <laughs> and I tried to make these answers easier, but the way it worked out in the story was like, we just have to keep doing the one foot in front of the other. We have to keep saying the thing that's true. And we have to keep hoping that eventually the wind will turn and people will start to hear. And the thing is, it's, it's hard, you know, we're never going to see linear progress. Like that is definitely something that we learned going through Obama. We're going to see eddies and swirls and we're going to see one step forward, two steps back, but we're not seeing no movement. And the important thing is like, that we keep speaking. I don't know if that helps, but that's sort of like definitely something that I think about a lot and that I'm trying to kind of work through with my fiction too. Of course, the alternative is we could all just go live in a cabin in the woods and pretend that the rest of the world's not there. Exactly. Um, or or break off into these super separate communities that have nothing to do with each other. And, you know, of course, though, for for families like ours, that's not an option. There's going to be, you know, a foot in both places. And so you can't just, you know, it's 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 too late for for a Marcus Garvey solution. <laughs> we live here so we're gonna have to do the best we can what i um, wanted to ask about dual perspectives and and then we'll start to think about land and this thing but you've written uh, about uh, two books now about uh two sisters and we've we've had back and forth between the the sisters and and their perspectives what does that technique of telling a story allow you to do and do you think that that's maybe like the Kelly McWilliams Lane that we're, we can look forward to more deal perspective books or have you got it out of your system? <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah, <laughs> I would say there is nothing on this earth that has given me more of a migraine than a two perspective story. <laughs> Although I have friends who tell, you know, who have written books from even more perspectives than that. And um, sometimes I think though two might be harder even than multiple, like the two hander, there's just something inherently like almost contradictory about telling a story from two perspectives. You can see a story from eight or from five or four, and then it's like a well-rounded kind of a thing, but two, it's like there's competition for, for worldview and there's just, it's difficult. Um, I just, I have a mentor who, who tells me, you know, you should just, you gotta quit it. <laughs> You gotta stop. And I'm at least taking a break. Um, I, I'm interested in sort of like dualities and, and binaries. So I probably will return to a two-hander, two-protagonist POV story, but not in the next two books because we gotta, gotta do that self-care. <laughs> but um, it was um, a huge challenge. It was like the, the probably the most challenging thing about both of these books was telling um, telling a story from, from two very different perspectives. Um, for Agnes and Beth, you know, Agnes is my, she's my superhero and she's great. And she's at heart, she's just generous and good and wise. And she's always trying her best. She's that person that we always, you know, that you can always rely on. And then her sister Beth is absolutely so unreliable and she is so vain and she has so many issues and, and, and she lets her fear get the better of her. She's like, she's a mess. She's, but, but I will say, I, you know, I really enjoyed writing her perspective because it's much more probably true to my life. <laughs> you know, that sort of, that sort of perspective of the flawed character. Um, 
And so telling the story with the two of them and having their, their different voices and what they both had to sort of achieve their, their story goals, they both had to grow as characters. Um, they would see things in two very different ways, but one was not better than the other. It's a tricky thing to pull off. And then that's not even, um, that's not even going into just the difficulties of, of, of time and what scene happens when and who's doing what when. That's a whole other like technical challenge. Um, but then for Mirror Girls, we have uh, Charlie and Magnolia. And Magnolia is my Southern Belle character. And she's a little bit more like Beth. She's um, off in her own world sometimes. She's been raised to believe things that you know are really not going to serve her and, and raised to think about race in, in very particular ways, being raised on this cotton plantation. And, and Charlie, you know, she's the Harlem activist. So there are these points of view with, with friction. And it can be hard to get a tone of a book to feel like unified when you have these, these frictive um, points of view. So it's a challenge. And I, I would say, if you can do a book in one perspective, it's gonna be easier. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm on a hiatus from two POV books. <laughs> When you uh, go through and you write them, do you write them in the more or less the order that that we read them? Or do you write one character for a while and just one character and then switch to the other one? Um, I, I, so I write them all in the order, but my characters don't stay the same through the revision process. Like normally the first note that I get is, oh, the voices sound too much alike. And then there's kind of a differentiation process where I go back through the next draft and I tell the story again, but Magnolia is more Southern than she was before. Like I remember between like the second and third draft when I was trying to get those voices distinct and also just trying to get them to, you know, to, to offer more to the story. I was like mainlining Tennessee Williams radio plays and really trying to get that kind of that voice and that atmosphere for her so that she didn't just sound like kind of a watered down version of her sister. Um, so for me, it's almost like, I don't know, it's like, I'm definitely gonna get this term wrong, but it likes like mitosis or meiosis. It's like the story splits, you know, but it, it starts out being told the same way. I don't spend more time with one than the other. There's usually like, one who's a stronger and easier for me to get. And so Agnes and Charlie were, were easier for me to get. They're kind of like the straight man in, for me. And then the character that's a little more outside of the comfort zone, that's a little trickier to write, like a little more controversial or whatever it is, um, does tend to need a little bit more revision and, and fussing with. See, I, I felt immediately I identified more with Beth than with Agnes because Agnes was, I would aspire to that. That's not, that's not me, but Beth, yeah, I could be that. <laughs> well, actually that, so that story went through more drafts and revisions than the other one. Like there was no Beth at one time in the very, very first draft of the story. There was just Agnes and she was too perfect and it was too Sometimes, you know, the, the superhero needs their alter ego and they need their weakness and they need, um, they also need that other character who plays off of them. They need that sort of Batman Robin vibe. Um, so Agnes was, was, you know, originally it was, it was truly just Agnes's story and Beth was a part of the story, but she had no perspective. And then in another draft after that, Beth started writing these letters, <laughs> including these letters and these diary entries from Beth. Like she was clearly trying real hard to like be born and to speak. <laughs> and um, my agent was like, well, why don't you just give her a, a point of view? 
And I did that and the book sort of shook into place because you're exactly right. Agnes is, is aspirational, but Beth is relatable and we sort of need that touchstone. So how many drafts were you looking at with both of these books? So Agnes was, was a lot. Agnes was like maybe seven or eight drafts in terms of like complete revisions. And some of them were just, you know, just redoing the third act or whatever, but some of them were full rewrites. I did a couple full rewrites, you know, in a panic on that book because it was just, um, it was a big project. There's a, there's a lot going on in that story. And I had not yet learned how to plot stories in advance. So every time I wrote one of these drafts, I was just like hoping that I would get to the end point. And that had worked for me one time when I was 15 and then never again was I going to get lucky like that. Um, and so actually while I was working on Agnes, I also, I read a bunch of, you know, books about creating stories and um, I started using the like Blake Snyder, save the cat beat sheet has been really helpful. Like I sort of internalized that framework so that I could have a language to understand the things that I was doing and like the moves that I was making. So then mirror girls, it was much fewer drafts because I'd sort of learned what I needed to do to put a structure in place in advance. So mirror girls was really only like three or four big drafts. Uh, and then um, I almost forgot to, to ask. I wondered because Ezekiel um, overcomes fear of the outsiders through Batman. Are you a Batman fan? Oh my goodness! Like, so my husband is a big Batman fan. <laughs> ah, there we go. So, by osmosis, I would say. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Mrs. Kent has not seen the Batman. Uh, she's walked by while parts of it have been on, so she's she's grokked its fullness. She's she's as good. Yes, as right. Like when we first got together, she went with me through the Nolan trilogy. Uh, and then after that, she's like, all right, baby, I love you, but you're going to have to Batman. <laughs> me. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, my, my husband, he, um, like, he used to work at a comic book store. So he's oh, a, yeah. just a comic person, comics person, all, you know, DC, Marvel, all the weird ones. He's into all of it. And um, it, it's really, it's funny how much you get like creatively from your partner and what they're interested in and the way they see things. And um, he reads all of my books. So there's definitely a way, like he's my first reader. So there's a way in which I'm, I'm writing them to him as well. So probably if Agnes is a superhero, I was trying to show off. <laughs> <laughs> the Batman won me over because you first wrote it to win your husband over. That makes sense. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to ask also, you name check Stephen King, and because you're dealing with, with a lot of horror and supernatural, I'm assuming you're a Stephen King fan, making your obligatory reference? Yeah, huge Stephen King fan. I just, you know, especially the early stuff, just um, the internal monologues that, that he was able to create and the sense of like dread and horror they instilled. I'm just, I'm a big, I'm a, probably a super fan. That's my biggest fandom, I would say, is those those old Stephen King books, just, I read them over and over again. He really has um, some great techniques that he has a lot of control of. What are your most favorites? My favorite is Misery. Um, love The Shining too. Pet Cemetery, although that's almost too hard to reread. The Tommyknockers, I'm not sure what happened there. He, it's like he was, I think maybe there was a, a period when he was not, not well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still had some stuff that was real fun to read. Um, the stand, you know, the stand is okay. I, I think it could be shorter. 
<laughs> but I love it. It's I, yeah, I love it. And I love sort of the monologue stuff that he does. Jerusalem's Lot, Salem's Lot was a really good one. And Carrie, the original, was really good too. But Misery has been a standout favorite. And sometimes actually when I'm in a writing slump, I'll go back and I'll read that one. Um, Cause it's just kind of that, that bottle drama, that box drama of just the two characters um, facing off against each other. But within that, he's able to like, just make these prisms of, you know, you really get a sense of the main character in that. And it's, it's just wonderful. Just wondered, I, I saw yeah. <laughs> in a lot of different folks and it, it's uh, Agnes trying to figure out what's meant by all these uh, different things that the outsiders are talking about. And Stephen King comes up like, yeah, it's not an accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and actually the, the scene, like um, I read a bunch of Stephen King while I was revising Agnes. Like it was, that was sort of like, that was instead of the Tennessee Williams for Mirror Girls, that was like my sort of touchstone where I just like let it play in the background on audiobooks or you know, read it in the morning before I start writing. Cause that style of like, you know, someone trapped in a box and only with their mind, they have to decide to give up or keep going. Like, I think that that was kind of what was going on there. So the scene that I think was most Stephen Kingy in my book was um, when Beth is going to escape um, from the, the crazy bunker that she's been thrust into. And she's like trapped behind the door and there's, you know, creatures on the other side and her managing her fear I was kind of trying to channel the, the way that King's characters really make this decision, like to, to live or die or to keep fighting or to give up. Uh, and we should uh, definitely talk just a little bit uh, about, um, uh, about mentorship. Although I got to say, I don't usually feel this way, but in the case, because it's you and because I feel such an affinity for your fiction, if there was one of my books I could get in your hand, it would be the book of David, because that's that's my Stephen King book. That's, oh, yay. Okay. It's got, religion, it's got Stephen King. I usually I don't do this to authors. Like, hey, you read what you want, but I think you might like that one. I'm going to shoot that up. In, to the in, top a, of in an ideal world, in some future where we're critique partners, I think that's that's my audition to be with your critique group. <laughs> I love it. I, well, I can't wait to check it out. I mean, like zombie fiction ever since The Walking Dead that has had my heart. <laughs> yeah, I can't, get, uh, I can't get enough zombies. No, me neither. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, you had, uh, through We Need Diverse Books, you had a mentorship with Jody Meadows. Um, and you said she provided a sounding board when things got frightening. So how did that mentorship work and how did that help you uh, get uh, all the way here to the Middle Grade Ninja podcast? That was great. Yeah. I mean, even if you like come from kind of a writing family, like you want to find a mentor who's, who's working in your genre and who's kind of just looking out for you and, and not also worried, like, did you go to the dentist that year? <laughs> and so I, I submitted um, my book in like fragments of Agnes in 2016 to We Need Diverse Books and um, was just looking for for someone to be um, to, to guide me through sort of having a real full fledged career. And I was really lucky to find Jody Meadows, who's a wonderful fantasy novelist. And particularly if you're looking for a sword and stone fantasy, I mean, you can't go wrong. And then she also writes um, the My Lady Jane series. She's a co-author of it. So this sort of historical humor, she's just, um, she's just a wonderful writer. And what she was really great at just being able to tell me with a straight face when I was not, not doing a good job. <laughs> she like, you know, to, to try and, um, you really want to find a mentor who's going to push you like someone you really want to impress and, um, someone, 
someone who will always tell you the truth. There was a, a draft of Mirror Girls at one point that I was mostly getting really good feedback on because it had some elements that were working, but I had this terrible fear in the pit of my stomach that the story was not working. Um, and so I sent it to her and she told me, you know, it is not working. And you just, you always need that person. And I think that's really what makes a great writing mentor is someone who's who's able to say that to you. And it's, it's difficult for them too, because nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> but, um, you know, that um, relationship has, you know, would always push me to help get my books to the next level and to keep working on them. Because it's very easy to sort of lean into just talent or having a way with words. But when someone really believes in you, they're going to hold you to a higher standard. So if you can find, like for just like writers out there, if you can find, um, you know, one of the pitch groups or anyone to connect you with some sort of a mentor who's really interested in going through the mentorship journey with you, like I can't recommend it highly enough. And Jody and I to this day are still really close friends um, and she's just a very sweet person. So when I moved into my new house here, it was cold in my office. And so my fingers would be getting chilly while I was typing and she's a knitter. So she knitted me a pair of like gauntlets that, you know, have your fingers free, but keep your forearms warm. And everyone needs a friend like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to take uh, the criticism you need too hard if she's also making a gauntlet somehow. It's true. <laughs> there is something deeply cynical. Uh, this is why you don't want to just ask your friends to, to read your stuff, but uh, deeply cynical about a, a critique partner that would just say everything is great. Is it just say just enough um, to get through this so that we can still be friends without rocking our boat at all? And you're not going to do anything with this book anyway. So what difference does it make? What, what opinion I give you? Whereas if you got somebody that's willing to look you in the eye and tell you that what you need to hear, that's a great friend. It's true. And, um, and it's a sign of amazing character too, because it's, you put yourself on the line when you, when you confront someone with that, with, you know, this is not as good as it can be. You need to go back to the drawing board. You know, you can get all sorts of reactions to that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting building like critique groups and it's, it's a whole alchemy in itself. Kelly McWilliams, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I certainly had every day saw the flying saucer that was on my I want to believe poster when I was a kid. <laughs> um, and I sometimes joke about, you know, like I would want to go out to Roswell, never actually seen a flying saucer. Um, ghost? I don't think I've ever seen a ghost, but I really want to. That's a life, that's a bucket list item for me. Fair enough. Kelly Williams, this has been an absolute pleasure. You've got two more books coming and, and more uh, beyond. So sooner or later, we're gonna have to get together and, and, and do this again. Um, but for tonight, my uh, final question for you uh, is if there was some bit of advice you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have made a difference um, and might make a difference in the lives of uh, everyone who's watching or listening to us now, why don't you go back and tell yourself? Oh, it can be when you're writing books on deadline, a real pressure cooker. And, and even when you're not on a deadline, when you're just trying to work on them for themselves, for themselves, it's, there's a sense of, of pressure. I think there's like an urgency to speak. Like you have a story you want to tell and you want to say it and you want to get it out there. Um, don't let yourself get too stressed. I would, I would want to fly back and tell myself, you know, take care of yourself, slow down, take the breaks that you need. 
tell people that, you know, the thing you're working on, you're not going to be able to deliver it by next Wednesday because you have life stuff going on too. And um, don't, don't push this type of career. Like there are careers where you have to, to meet every deadline, but when art stuff is involved, it's different and you have to stay healthy enough um, and sane enough to, um, to keep making art. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to drop everything on, on one book. You don't want to burn yourself out. And I think there was a time during the pandemic when Agnes had just come out and I was working on Mirror Girls when I was really risking burnout. Um, and I think a lot of us just in America and all sorts of different jobs, we hit that moment where it was like, I have nothing more to give. And you just, you want to try not to get there because if you get there too often, you might just put your pen down and not write anymore. And how, what would be more sad than that? Um, so yeah, just people who are out there with creative careers, make sure that I feel like it's almost a cliche now. We say take care of, our, of yourself, but it's, it's so crucial because it's not a job where you're out, um, you know, striking nails with hammers. You're really, you're doing something else and it takes, it takes a lot of, of health and, and soul to be able to do it. That's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? You can find me at kellymcwilliamsauthor.com and there's an email if you have a question for me. You know, I love to get emails from, from readers or from anybody. I'm sporadically on Instagram at kellymcwilliams and I think the same address too on TikTok, but like really sporadically. Like that's, I dip a toe in and then I'm, I'm gone. But if I do see messages, I do try to get back to messages on there too. Uh, student audience, I have gratuitously blogged the book of David, so I'll do it one more time. Uh, the uh, You can get the omnibus copy or you can get it as, a, as it was originally published as a five volume serial horror novel. And that first volume, the book of David, chapter one by Robert Kent is available to download as a free ebook. You can get it right now while you're watching or listening to us. Uh, as always, for more interviews, almost as good as this one, with uh, authors, literary agents, editors, the world's best people, book people, head to middlegradeninja.com and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.